Hello, and thank you for tuning in. You are listening to the Bringing Inspiration to Earth show. You can listen and subscribe to the show for free on Spotify, TuneIn, iHeartRadio, Blog Talk Radio, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, and Audible. For network or show information, visit fightradio.me. And now, the Bringing Inspiration to Earth show. Okay, everyone, thank you for joining us for this edition of the Bringing Inspiration to Earth Show. Today, my special guest is Leonard Lee Bouchel, and we'll be talking about his journey, as well as his book, Hot, Confessions of a Cannabis Addict. If National Lampoon published a hysterically funny and mildly offensive parody of recovery memoirs, it wouldn't be as funny and as mildly <laughs> offensive as this autobiography of Leonard Lee Bouchel, co-founder of Writers in Treatment. Excuse me. Um, Leonard is a former drug dealer who now has over two decades of clean and sober recovery from his drugs and alcohol. He is author of the riveting autobiography, High Confessions of a Cannabis Addict, that chronicles his 25 years of addiction and drug sales before attaining sobriety. Leonard chose to refocus his life on helping people with addiction to achieve a sober life. He became a California Certified Substance Abuse Counselor. He is the editor and publisher of the weekly Addiction Recovery eBulletin, which reaches tens of thousands each week, and he is the creator and director of the 13-year-old Real Recovery Film Festival and Symposium, which takes place each year in Los Angeles, Denver, and New York City. With Robert Downey Sr., he co-founded Writers in Treatment, which assists individuals in the writing profession suffering from addictions to receive scholarships and recommendations to reliable treatment facilities. Leonard also speaks at addiction and recovery conferences. He also produces the annual Experience, Strength, and Hope Awards in Los Angeles. He has just celebrated 27 years of being clean and sober. The recipients have included Buzz Aldrin, Lou Gossett Jr., Mackenzie Phillips, Jane Velez Mitchell, Pat O'Brien, Duran Duran's John Taylor, Christopher Kennedy Lawford, Jody Sweeten, and superstar agent Lee Steinberg. The real life Jerry McGuire. Leonard is proud of his nearly three decades of sobriety. He is here today to highlight some of his adventures in High Confessions of a Cannabis Addict and to inspire addicts to seek help and to demonstrate that there is great life on the other side of addiction. For more information, you can visit Leonard's website, which is leonardbuchel.com, and that's Leonard, and then B-U-S-C-H-E-L.com. And with that, I'd like to welcome Leonard to the show. Good day, Leonard. Hey, good good afternoon, Robert. Robert, I forget, where are you located? Well, I'm physically located in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. Where are you spiritually and, located? Uh, Someplace else? <laughs> Probably. <laughs> uh, yeah, so I would say that um, South Carolina in general has a very different philosophy than mine. But um, but I'm here to be a a thorn on some people's side, <laughs> but that's okay. Hey, look, it's you know they they still think they won the war. That God bless them. Uh, so here we are. Uh, I love the name of your show. Can you repeat that for everybody who who forgot it already? It's bringing inspiration to earth. Right. And that's you know I, I would think inspiration is just the the spark 
that is the start of all creativity, I think. You know, it's funny you say that because inspiration, I think it's related to the word inspire, which might be something to do with breath, inspire, inhale. And part of my journey, unfortunately for me, was a, a serious case of asthma, which did not stop me from smoking pot every day for 26 years. Uh, and I remember always feeling a little bit, oh, you know, like an insecure, uh, something about not always being able to have a full breath made me feel like I was somehow spiritually deficient. Uh, I don't feel that way anymore. Uh, but I did for a time, and there's nothing worse than feeling spiritually insufficient because of having been born with a disease of asthma. Uh, yeah. I wish there had been a 12-step program for that. But isn't it amazing that people suffering from severe drug addiction or alcoholism can walk into a room with other people who used to suffer from alcoholism and drug addiction, and suddenly they're in remission. It's just fantastic. That's what happened to me. I don't, I don't know where you want to go with this conversation, but it's uh, one of the most interesting times on earth, I think. I don't think the earth has ever been in this much jeopardy before. Uh -huh. I agree. I, I agree. It, it is very turbulent times. And um, well, now let let's start with your your experience. You know the you know you indicated um, asthma didn't stop you from from smoking. Tell us um, of the beginning. You know, kind of going back to the beginning when you started. Um, I wouldn't say experimenting, but when you started using. Um, and, and, you know, how, how, when did that happen and, and kind of how did it progress? It happened when I was about hmm, 17. And I had been a practicing compulsive gambler for a few years already. In my early teens, I was a compulsive gambler. And... I loved the rush of making a bet and, and, and knowing, not knowing whether you're going to be happy afterwards or depressed afterwards. And I have a theory that some compulsive gamblers are as addicted to the, to the feeling bad after they lose as they are to the feeling good because it's a feeling. And most people, I think, are just uh, in, 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 in search of feeling and not being numbed out by television or cigarettes or, you know, their, their, their job if they're not doing something that's really inspiring, as you say. So I've been a compulsive gambler, and I was not – I enjoyed it immensely, but I, I, I lost a lot. I lost a lot. And one day, uh, instead of going to the track with $100, I went and bought some pot, and I sold it, and then I suddenly I had $125, and I thought, wow, that's a win. That's a win. Well, stop wasting your money gambling it away and start buying marijuana because you win every time. And I guess by having it with me all the time, it was easy to get high all the time, which I did every day for 26 years. Uh, I guess it it, it turned my life from black and white to color. You know, I, I grew up as a only lonely child. My father died when I was three weeks old. My older brother got uh, sent to boarding school. And I might have been suffering from uh, like a low-grade loneliness, depression, uh, sadness, you know, un un unprocessed grief, if you will. Uh, and, you know, the three or four bottle Coca-Colas a day certainly helped, and uh, and television helped. Uh, but when I smoked that first joint, literally, color came into my life. And for the next hmm. 26 years, I literally wore rose-colored glasses 
over time because I preferred the world in color rather than the starkness of black and white. Of course, I love black and white movies, but I prefer a colorful life. And that's how it started, by just having a a real affection for the, the sensation that it gave me. Of course, that sensation wears off after 10 or 15 years, but you, but, but you still keep smoking because it's, because it's a habit. Yeah. And you don't know how long yeah. to manage the day. So I don't know if that answers yeah. your question or not. It does. And you know, it, it was interesting, you know, you had talked about, you talked about the, uh, the, the, the wins and the losses as kind of tapping into feeling. And mm-hmm. it seems that, from what I understand, um, many times an addictive personality or addictive behaviors, let's say, are um, an effort to avoid feeling. Um, so, what, what's your what's your feeling about about that aspect? You know, uh, 27 years ago, when I was sitting outside at the rehab under a tree on a Sunday, and the Sundays were my least favorite day because it was not so much program. Other people had family visitors. I told everyone in my family, do not come visit me. I got, you know, I'm, I'm doing this on my own. Don't visit me. Maybe I was ashamed of being in a rehab. I'm not sure. Uh, and I was sitting under a tree, and I literally saw like a locomotive, a feeling coming towards me. And I and I wasn't quite sure what that feeling was going to be, but it could have. It, you know, I had a feeling it wasn't going to be a great one, and I just sat there, and the feeling came and left. It came through me and left, and at that moment I realized, wow, feelings come and go. Previously, for the 26 years before that, every time I had a feeling coming. I could adjust it, I could enhance it with a drug, I could repress it with a different drug. I could, I, you know, I, I never let anything naturally come to affect me because I had this amazing toolbox of Valiums and Percodan and lines of cocaine and hits of ecstasy and a couple little magic mushrooms and not to mention alcohol. I mean, meaning vodka and tequila and Heineken. So every feeling could be sculpted to the way I wanted it or or negated if, if I didn't want to feel it. Uh, and, and that's, you know, that's an art unto itself, which ultimately when you give up that particular toolbox, you're left with something called, um, oh, God, I don't want to. I get reality, reality, and the ability to reframe reality so that it's special. It's special. Looking at a tree is special. If you take a split second to notice the leaves and the branches and the trunk, they're amazing things. They're like alive. Everything is alive and I think having used drugs and drank for long you're, you only the only thing you think is alive are women uh, or, mm. or you know Broadway musicals are alive art museums are alive but they're even more alive when it's just you and the artwork when it's just you and the performers whether it's just you on the banks of the lake or in my case you know, at the at the shore, because I live in Los Angeles, and there's a Pacific Ocean not that far away, and it's always open for visitation, and just the sound of the waves is like music, or 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 or, or, or play. I don't know. It depends on uh, how you're feeling at the time, but it doesn't have anything to do with any substances you put in your body. And for me, I still appreciate that uh, as, as a miraculous, uh, let's say, improvement on how I lived most 
my life. And I, you know, this last sober celebration, this last sober anniversary if you're on the East Coast, on the West Coast we call it a birthday, was very meaningful to me because it meant I was now clean and sober for the same amount of time I was high. Hence the name of the book, Hi, Confessions of a Cannabis Addict, available on Amazon or for order at Barnes & Noble's. And there's a lot of photographs in it. I would, I, if I hadn't become a drug dealer, I would have been a photographer, but I've always had a great 35-millimeter camera. There's a lot of photos in the book. There's a lot of humor. Uh, there's a lot of frisky escapades, if, if, if I can use a euphemism for incredibly sexual. Very frisky book. And a very uh, book that honors... The poets I've met and studied with, you know, the great musicians of that era, and it's funny. It's funny. Uh, you know, if I, you know, like I said, when I was in growing up in Philadelphia, people paid me to get their marijuana. If I was born in Los Angeles and someone paid me to write a joke, I would have been a joke writer. But I just yeah. went where... Where the cash was. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I understand. So now, when, well, first of all, with all of those years, um, and in the role of also selling, um, was there, I would think that there would have been at least a couple close calls or, or, or maybe some, you know, kinds of uh, interactions that maybe had you wondering whether that was the smart thing to be doing. Did that happen at all? My life was a close call. Uh, there was one, there were several, but one time when I had come back from smuggling hashish from Israel because we couldn't get any in Philadelphia or New York and I couldn't live without getting high, so I literally went to the Middle East to bring back hashish to get high and to sell a little to help pay for the trip. I was selling my last quarter ounce of hash, red Lebanese hash, very delicious, very sweet, smooth. Um, and I'm in the basement of a friend in a neighborhood in Philadelphia called Kensington, Allegheny, and the two buyers are there, and I show them the pile to take a hit, and they reached into their pockets for what I thought was going to be money, but they each took out a pistol. One took out a revolver, the other one took out uh, an automatic pistol, held it to my heart. The other gentleman, and I use that term very loosely, held a revolver to my temple and my head, and I looked in the, in the, and I could see bullets in the barrel, so I knew they weren't kidding. And they took the, hash. Uh, they took the $200 I had on me, which is, at that time was a lot of money. We're talking many years ago. Um, and they walked me to my car and made sure I got in and drove away. And I burst into tears hysterical from, from the near thinking, wow, I could have just been killed. If I had done or said the wrong thing, my life could have ended on that, that, that night in Kensington and Allegheny. Uh, instead, I just drove home in tears thinking, oh, my God, you know, that was a shock. I did have one positive thought. I thought if I ever got an acting job, and I did do a lot of acting when I was younger, I thought if I ever have a part that calls for being scared to death, I will recreate this moment. Um, for the stage or the camera, whatever it happened to be. So if you're talking about situations like that, yes. And uh, it, it, that, 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 you know, nothing quite that dramatic happened with pistols literally touching my temple and touching the, my chest. Um, but there are a lot of close calls with the police. You know, it's not just about violence, it's about going away for years and years. Can you imagine that they used to put people in jail for five and
than 10 years for having a pound of marijuana? This is like, it was, it was barbaric. I think people will look back on those times and think, wow, the United States of America was incredibly cruel to, the, to, the, to, the, to their most vulnerable citizens. Um, I, I, yes, that was frightening. It was frightening. And my resolve at that moment, driving away in tears, was I'm never dealing drugs in that neighborhood again. That was my mm -hmm. solution. The same way after I had a near-death experience and ended up in a coma in a hospital for three days, when eventually I came to, I said, I'm not drinking vodka anymore. I'm switching to Bombay Gin Sapphire. And I never thought of giving up. And it was cocaine that got me into the hospital that for those few days. They actually, I was in Los Angeles. They called my mother in Philadelphia and said, hey, you better be on the next flight to L.A. because there's a 50-50 chance you're going to fly home with your son's body. That's how close I was to, you know, buying the farm, as they say. Oh, wouldn't it be nice to have a farm um, and take care of the earth and plant worms? Wouldn't it be great to pick up worms and put on a hook and throw it into a pond and catch a fish and fry the little fucker? Sorry for cursing, but you're in South Carolina. I don't think you actually have any laws that are enforced down there. <laughs> Not really. Uh, well, I could. Uh, but the, you want to talk about the planet? What have you done in the last week to to help save the planet? May I ask? What have I done in the last week? Yeah. Hmm. yeah. Let's see. Because I'm looking for tips. Because I feel, yeah. you know, the last two years with this. Uh, little virus that's been going around and people mm -hmm. were afraid to go out. Uh, they started ordering in a lot of food being delivered and it's all delivered in yeah. these big containers that you can you can recycle for the first week or two. You could put dog food in it or, or whatever. But then you just throw them out. And, 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 and the amount of trash America has not to mention the several billion face masks that have been thrown out. I'm talking about, you know, what food is delivered in, which is plastic, and what do you do with it, uh, or, or if you pick, you know, to go. I can't imagine how much more trash America and and a lot of the rest of the world, but America for sure, is where the where the, the king of. Uh, Trash, you know how did how much bigger did, did those uh, what do they call them? Where they bury all the dirt? I mean, where they bury all the trash? Those incredible. What's it called, Robert? Where where is your trash? Where was yesterday's trash today? When the, when the garbage truck up and they pick it up and they take it somewhere to the dump. To the local dump, correct. Local dump, and some of the yeah. some of them sneak it into the ocean, probably. Uh, yeah. So, and the prognosis that the planet Earth got recently was not good. Not good. No. Yeah, the, the, no. the Earth planet is sick. Yeah, it's like a the tree gets a fungus. The planet has a has a it's it's ill. Uh, and, yeah. uh, you know, I, I don't criticize my son for not having children and he's of the age where he could have because I, I can see where 20-year-olds, you know, 30-year-olds are afraid to bring children onto the planet knowing that it might end up just looking like a, an Armageddon movie or Mad Max yeah. or Six. Uh, we're going to run out of something soon. I don't know whether it's going to be fuel or water or food, but something. And people yeah. are going well, to do whatever they have to do. And I think uh, 
Here, those are major issues. The vehicles? The, well, no, I said all, all three of those, you know, the water, um, the... Um, uh, fuel, fuel to get places. You know, yeah, the fuel, and um, yeah, all of those are going to, you know, and just the changing climate and increased um, uh, intensity of, of weather events. You know, I mean, it, you know, I have had several um, people on the show who, you know, and we talk about the environment. You know, one of them was. Um, the gentleman, the captain who discovered the um, Pacific. Shackleton? Uh, no, his, his, yeah, yeah, it was, his name was uh, Charles, um, dang, I, I'm running a, a blank on it. But, yeah, but what he was the one that, well, he was, uh, he was the one that I think it was in the, the 90s. Um, was doing the, uh, the boat, uh, you know, um, adventure from Los Angeles to, uh, to Australia. There's that famous. And he made a boat out of natural material? No, no, but he, he, on his way back, he discovered, he went off the regular maritime routes and right. that's when he discovered the Pacific garbage patch, where, right. where all of yeah. the curves converged yeah. and, and that, and, um, you know, and I mean, there are, there are a lot of people that are working toward that, but I'm not sure it's not too late, you know, because I just read an I article about... No, uh, it's never too late. Well, yeah. that's not true, but... And I hope your listening audience hasn't gotten as depressed as I have from this interview. So, how, how do we change? How do we change the narrative? How do we talk about the fact that uh, yesterday in America was an, such an incredibly historic day, mind-boggling, that the first female black woman was appointed to the Supreme Court to be sworn in by the first black female vice president. Mm-hmm. This is, you know, there's, there's people, there must be people in states like Texas and South Carolina wondering, what the hell? <laughs> we, we definitely lost control of that one. Uh, yeah. But it's dark. It's, too, it's so, so many firsts in one moment. That it was breathtaking. It was, uh, you know, it was a tearjerker uh, to, right. to to yeah. to, you know, to witness that on television. It really was magnificent. Yeah, and I was going to say, you know, we have the option of of looking at that and recognizing the important significance of that, and and the fact that it shouldn't have taken so long for it to happen. Um, yet at the same time. We also had that uh, display of, I don't know what, arrogance that, you know, confronted her, you know, throughout that process. And, you know, I mean, that exists, you know, um, as well as the historical moment of, you know, that, that happened. So I think what we do is, like you, you, you focus on that moment. And... Still recognize that there are challenges that maybe prevent that kind of thing or limit that kind of thing, but um, I think that it's important to see that to affirm the positive. I mean, it's like, yeah, it's because of the um, ignorance, the lack of knowledge on, on, on the part of some that make it all that much more historic, you know, because, I mean, there, this is where we came from. This is the attitudes that we came from to this is where we are. And this is, you know, that more aware kind of approach to things. So, I mean, it's, I think we're in, in a moment that is highlighting, uh, for lack of better words, light and dark, you know, I mean, it, uh, 
advancement mm-hmm. in mm-hmm. in sluggishness or you know staleness. You know, so and, and I think it's causing people like the pandemic, causing people to evaluate where they are in that continuum, and, and I think that's a good thing. Yes, I, I agree completely. To evaluate okay. where you are as an individual in the continuum of uh, was that love versus hate, prejudice versus compassion. Uh, health versus illness, violence versus nonviolence. Uh, exactly. You know, and, and it, even though it appears to be a duality, it's it's more of a continuum. You know, people are, you know, somewhere on that. And the fact that the more we learn, the more we, we become aware, the more our um, our behaviors are going to shift, you know, to support that change in view. So, so I, I don't want them to be depressed. Um, and I think that uh, you know, and I think you know, the important thing is is to uh, keep one um, to, to to be as rare as possible, and to have one's actions support. Um, a um, an informed, a new informed kind of belief. So it's like you know, it, it, you recognize where you're at. You're at the rest. You know, I'm more in line with, you know, this particular view that it's historic, it's memorable, it's appropriate, it's long overdue. You know, I'm more in line with that one than I am, uh, you know. What was her LSAT score? You know what? You know she's light on crime. Or, you know, I mean, I mean, all of the stuff that would have held her back. You know, was mm-hmm. not in, to prevent that forward movement. So that's a good thing. Yes, it's yeah. uh, a beautiful world if you make it that way. Cannabis Addict. 
Um, you can find out more about Leonard by visiting his website, which is leonardbushell.com, and that's Leonard, and then B-U-S-C-H-E-L.com. And again, his book is available from Amazon.com, Barnes & Noble, and other leading bookstores. Okay, with that, we're back, Leonard. Yes, Robert? Okay, great, great. So, the, excuse me, at what point were you aware that your behaviors were addiction, and at what point did you recognize that you needed to do something about it? I was driving across the Golden Gate Bridge in my very low-profile Volvo. Beautiful day, sunroof was open, and I had a vial of cocaine in that little pocket that, that they put on jeans to hold the vials of cocaine in. And I took it out, and I thought, I'm going to throw this out the sunroof of the low-profile Volvo right into the San Francisco Bay. And I held it in my two fingers, and I held it, and I started to, you know, rehearse the throwing action of the arm to get it out of the sunroof and into the Golden and into the San Francisco Bay. But I didn't let it go. I didn't throw it because I realized if I throw this out, that means I have a problem. And I had snorted cocaine every single year. For, I, for, for 13 years of my life, I did cocaine every single day. That vial was never empty. And for the first 12 years, every time I did a line or a spoonful, I did it because I wanted to. But that 13th year, I would wake up in the morning and say, I'm not going to do any coke until after dinner tonight. And then right after lunch, I would do a line. And I thought, hmm, I told myself I was going to do it until after dinner. Here I am doing it. And I would say, you know, it's Tuesday. I'm not going to do any coke at all today. Again, right after lunch, I'm, I'm doing it. So I thought, oh, shit. I used to be able to control it, meaning just do it whenever I, wa I wanted to. But now I was doing it when I didn't want to. And that's when I, you know, for my own definition of addiction, is doing something that you tell yourself you don't want to. Not that you shouldn't. You know, but that you don't, that mm -hmm. you tell yourself, I'm not going to do it, and you do it anyway. Uh, when you're, so that, that, that's when I knew I had a problem, and it frightened me, because I thought, oh, my God, I am now a certified cocaine addict, whether I want to be or not. For the first 12 years, I didn't look at it that way. I looked at it like, oh, my God, you're so lucky. You have cocaine at your disposal, you know, every day. Uh, but it was that 13th year that I thought, oh, no, I'm trapped. I'm imprisoned. I'm enslaved uh, by this drug. And thinking, I have no idea how to get out of it. Um, in, in a sort of perverse way, luckily... I was uh, doing MDMA at the time, also known as uh, Tina, uh, no, not Tina, as, as uh, it's called Adam at the time, Molly, uh, Ecstasy. And I was getting it in capsules that I could empty the capsule and snort the ecstasy. And so my addiction, it seemed like, was the snorting and white powders. So I had a girlfriend at the time who said, I don't like coming over to your house not knowing what kind of mood you're going to be in based on the fact of the cocaine you're snorting. So I thought, oh, okay, I don't want to disappoint her, and I can snort ecstasy instead. So it's talked about in 
addiction and recovery circles across addiction. Like, if you can't get one thing, you'll switch to something else because it's the nature of, of your, you know, makeup. And so I started starting ecstasy, and six months later, I noticed I hadn't started a cocaine. Uh, and then, like, four years later, I ended up in a rehab uh, and, and realized I had, I had to stop starting ecstasy. In fact, it was the ecstasy that got me to go to the Betty Ford Center uh, 27 years ago because I could because I was, it was doing too much and I couldn't stop. And I would tell myself, I'm only going to do two hits tonight. I'd end up doing four. Uh, and then my girlfriend and I went to Europe for three weeks. We took 60 hits of E with us, uh, hoping that would be enough. Eventually, she threw it out the window into a canal in Amsterdam because we were having an argument. And two nights later, she's trying to score at a disco. But I'm not scoring ecstasy from strangers. Uh, anyway, it was that kind of lifestyle. You know, the mm-hmm. first step, I think, of alcohol synonymous is your life became unmanageable. No, they become manageable as a drug addict or an alcoholic would manage your life. So it really didn't become unmanageable. I managed it like a stone-cold drug addict. And yeah. it was, it, you know, it worked until, and even after I had the near-death experience at the hospital when my mother flew out from Philadelphia to Los Angeles, to possibly take me home in a coffin, even that didn't get me to stop. I never even thought of quitting at that time. Yeah, I guess the word is insidious or convincing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I never thought you could live. It was only after being away for 28 days that I realized I just had gone 28 days without drinking or using. I didn't think it was possible on a quantum level of existence that you could go without sticking something up your nose or or, or, or drink something. Uh, luckily, I only smoked heroin. I never snorted it or, or, or injected it, thank God. Uh, and even after smoking it for a while, I thought, hmm, this is too good. You know, I beat the freebase. I was doing freebase for all the time, and I thought, wow. I get high on freebase, I can't answer the phone, and the, the phone was my lifeline to existence. So I quit that on my own. I can't afford not to pick up the phone. Yeah, and now there's, a, there's you know, great Dr. Carl Hart from, uh, I think, Columbia Neuroscience, who says, people could be convinced not to get to drugs if you give them money. And I... Published a lot of articles on the Addiction Recovery eBulletin. And the website is addictionrecoveryebulletin.org. And I think it was an, there was an article last week about how it's the most effective treatment modality there is by actually giving people cash not to get high. And they don't go out and spend the money on drugs. They use it for their phone bills and their rent and food. Uh, that that is as much of a deterrent as any kind of punishment ever used to be. And I saw this week that the Congress of the United States of America voted uh, unequivocally to legalize marijuana on a federal level. And now the Senate has to vote on it, and hopefully they'll do the right thing. Hopefully they will do the right and federally legalize marijuana and stop putting poor people in jail for it just to support the prison industrial complex. So, if that answers yeah, your question... Wanted, yeah, ask, yeah, and I wanted to ask you about that. You know, with, with the fact that we've got, um, you know, that trend toward, you know, decriminalization, um, what's your... I mean, you said that you hope that they go through and do that. I mean, so... What is your feeling is, as far as usage and addiction? I mean, is there, do you feel that a decriminalization will lead to, um, 
more more addiction, I mean, um, a higher rate of addiction? Yeah, they decriminalized Heineken. They decriminalized tequila. And they decriminalized Stolichnaya vodka, which I think should all be poured down the drain right now. But besides that, <laughs> um, uh-huh. they legalized alcohol, which is kills more people a year than anything else. Uh, yeah. No, it's a great drug. At the right time for the right person, marijuana is a great drug. But after 20 years, you still need it. You know, it's like, don't you want to experience life on life's terms? And maybe that's a cliche. Don't you want to experience life on the natch? Don't you want to experience life like you did when you were five years old? Open and amazed and curious about everything and not a little dull with it because you're high on weed. Uh, yeah, maybe when you're 20 and 23, it, it can open your mind. I don't know if it's the, I don't know if weed is the same drug as it was, uh, when, hold on please. I'm back. Oh, that happens on live radio, doesn't it? We're good. And where where, where, where were we? Yeah, house. marijuana. Yeah. Except if you feel there's something wrong with it. If you woke up today and said, I'm not going to get high until after dinner, and you put a joint in your mouth after lunch, you know, that's an issue. Yeah. It, you don't want to. You're going to find it's not that easy to quit, uh, and it's not yeah. that easy to enjoy anymore. You know, potheads yeah. will get high to go to a funeral. They'll get high to go to a wedding. They'll get high yeah. to go to a christening. They'll get high if they're in an ambulance being taken to the hospital, if they let them smoke in the ambulance, which I don't think they do. So yeah, I call it the great... Neutralizer. You have a good day at work. You come home, you smoke a joint. Oh, I'm hot. You have a bad day at work. You come home, you smoke a joint. Oh, I'm not as low as I would be. It's the, it's a, it's a, I call, sometimes I call it when I'm not in a good mood, the mediocritizer. It makes everything mediocre. There's no highs, there's no lows. Please, don't take the edge off my life. I love the edge. You know, maybe not the edge of a, of a razor that you're chopping up coke with, but the edge is where the action is. And if you're smoking pot to take the edge off, what are you afraid of? You're afraid of the edge? You did okay in you two. Uh, uh, yeah. uh, I don't think yeah. there's anything to be afraid of in terms of having an edge, being on the edge. Isn't that where mountain climbers love to be on the edge? Don't you like to be on the edge of a diving board? Yeah. So... Yeah, no, legalize yeah. it. Don't legalize it and make cocaine available at CVS and Walmart or Walgreens, whatever. They legalize all of it. Who cares what I do to myself? I'm not hurting you. You know, guys shooting up heroin in his house. They come in, they arrest them. A guy the next door is drinking a bottle of vodka by himself. He's not going to get arrested. But the guy giving himself a shot in the arm, they're going to arrest him? Why? He's not hurting anybody. You know, if he, if he robs somebody, that's against the law. Uh, you know, there are no, there are no drug crimes. There are only drug policy crimes. Yeah. It, it should all be legalized and be regulated. You could stop the overdose deaths tomorrow if you legalized heroin so everybody could get it without fentanyl in it. You know, here, here's a bag. Sure, heroin, go home, have a good time. Or, or you can buy it on the street for $10 more and there's fentanyl in it and you'll die. What are you going to do? Uh, yeah, yeah. Now, now so, you use the term, you use the term in, in, called uh, struck sober. What? I had what a very fortunate experience. I drove myself in my low profile Volvo to the rehab, okay? And 
I walked up to the front desk. I said, is this where I check in? And the woman, nasty piece of work, said, this isn't a hotel. This isn't where you get checked in. This is where you get admitted. It's a hospital. I said, okay, it's a hospital. Uh, two days later, I had what some people would call a miracle. Maybe it was an epiphany. Maybe it was the luckiest day of my life. Maybe after all those years of losing gambling, I finally won. And I had the experience of having all desire for drugs leave me. Leonard Lee Bouchel, on that day, in that moment, no longer wanted to get high on anything. After 26 years of using something or another every day, I realized I no longer needed nothing. But what I needed was nothing. It's a Japanese aphorism that says, at its extreme, everything turns to its opposite. So maybe that's what happened to me. Maybe like putting uh, sugar in, in, in hot water and waiting until it crystallizes. Maybe I had so much drugs in me, boom, suddenly no more was necessary. I did my lifetime allotment of cocaine and percolate and thallium. Maybe I did them all up. And in that moment, I needed them no more. And it was quite mm. a, something. And it has happened to thousands of people. I, I used to keep a record of people who shared at AA meetings that they went into their first meeting and never picked up a drink again. There's no logical explanation for that. And they went into remission immediately uh, without even detoxing. Suddenly, they no longer had that compulsion or that obsession. And that's what happened to me. Uh, I know a lot of people have to work at it to get in the States over. And uh, my heart goes out to everybody who's battling it. I didn't have to battle it. And I didn't go to the rehab to quit drugs and alcohol. I went because I was having a nervous breakdown. I thought the cops were about to arrest me. You know, uh, you know, seriously, it wasn't paranoia. I was never paranoid. I always knew that people wanted to arrest me for 23 years. I knew every day that the authorities would like to arrest me. Uh, they didn't know where I was, they didn't know who I was, but theoretically, well, I was breaking the law every single day. Uh, yeah. No, it's not a moral law, but the laws of the United States of America, KK, uh, I was breaking the law. So, but I wasn't paranoid. I knew yeah, that I was doing yeah. something that could get me to a lot of trouble. So, yeah. Yeah. that's, that's where that struck sober and it has happened to many, many people on drugs and on alcohol. It just mm -hmm. happens. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Gosh, we're, we're down to um, about five, five minutes here, um, Leonard. So there are a couple of things that I want to kind of just get your take on. One of them is, is that you co-founded uh, with Robert Downey Sr. the Writers and Treatment. Um, program. And so, and for listeners who want to learn about it, they can go to writersandtreatment.org. So can you tell us um, how that came about and what are some of the activities that Absolutely. are... Writers in Treatment, mm -hmm. not and, just because some people, I, I miss, you know, it's in IN Treatment, writersandtreatment.org. Uh, it's a .org. Uh, there was a gentleman in Los Angeles named Buddy Arnold, who started an organization called MAP, which was stood for a Musician's Assistance Program. And he would help musicians who were strung out on drugs uh, go to rehab, and he would do concerts and raise money and, and help the suffering, you know, people, musicians, because he was a saxophone player from New York. He ended up in L.A. And... Uh, I had had a lot of experiences with writers, 
and I had been a publisher, and I thought, why not start an organization for writers who are in trouble with drugs and alcohol and send them to rehab? So we started Writers in Treatment, and it's even more, um, more let's say, dangerous, I think, for writers, because at least musicians have to go play with other musicians. They have to go to rehearsal. They have to show up at gigs. Writers can do can work from home, send it in over the computer. They can be alone, and that isolation can be, you know, murderous sometimes. So we started sending people who uh, sent us in uh, applications and sent them to, you know, to rehabs in Denver and Los Angeles, uh, and. It turned out to get some publicity for that organization. We started the Real Recovery Film Festival, which is also a great website because you can see some videos on there. And Real is spelled R-E-E-L. We started this so long ago, our first Real Recovery Film Festival, we showed only 35-millimeter film. And now there is no more film. It's all digitized. It's all digital. But realrecoveryfilmfestival.org, uh, we started that. The first year we showed a bunch of classics. Opening night we showed a great movie called Permanent Midnight. Uh, and we had the writer of the movie, a gentleman named Jerry Stahl, and Ben Stiller was there as he played Jerry in the movie. And it was a great, auspicious opening night. And they sat on stage for a half hour after the movie and answered questions and talked to each other. It was really <clears throat> very exciting because it also added more insight you know, to the film everyone has just seen, and one of the, the, the one of the uh, my one of the traits of the Real Recovery Film Festival is we never just show a film and say good night or goodbye. We always have either the filmmakers or a clinician do a uh, a talk back with the audience. So we never just show a film and say good night. We always show a film and talk about it afterwards. You know, talk about was it inspiring? Was it scary? You know, was it? Did you get triggered? Could you relate to a character? Is this going to make you, you know, want to stay clean and sober even more? You know, it was just it's like a mini process group, is what I call it, and people love it because they know they get to participate. Uh, it's 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 an interactive film festival, and we've been doing it for. This will be our 14th year. The last two years, obviously, we had to pivot and go online, which was terrific because we had people tuning in uh, from every state in the union and, like, 12 other countries. Uh, but I like the live atmosphere. So right now we have a theater in L.A. Uh, October 21st to October 27th, the fabulous, beautiful Lemley Theater in North Hollywood, California. Uh, we've always been in New York for a week in November. We're starting to set that up now. Uh, so anybody can just go to the website, realrecoveryfilmfestival.org, and real is R-E-E-L, really. Yeah, that's great. And one more thing. You're, you mentioned this a couple of times, the Addiction Recovery e-bulletin. Um, that's an amazing journal. It's amazing. It's eight and a half years old. AddictionRecoveryEbulletin.org. It changes every week. Every Tuesday morning, it completely changes all the most recent newsworthy articles about that world. Celebrity, sobriety, uh, you know, science news, personal stories. Mm -hmm. It's a wonderful source. I, I started that. Because when I was a drug counselor, uh, the second day there, my, my supervisor says, okay, now you have to do a group, 20 guys in a group. And I said, okay, where's the book of group topics? They laughed. They said, there's no such So I make sure every week on the Addiction Recovery Ebulletin, there's an article that some drug counselor somewhere can print out and use it uh, to provoke a really interesting conversation with their clients. You know, or, or or teach them something, you know, new discoveries. Uh, so there's always something in there for for drug counselors to use with their clients. Yeah. 
Well, that's great. And, and, and yeah, I had some wonderful articles I was exploring it the other day. So, what do you hope from reading high? What do I hope people get from reading high? I hope they yeah. giggle. I hope they laugh. <laughs> I hope they get a little aroused. And I hope they get to pick up a book of poetry again. Write a haiku. Uh, I hope it gets them uh, to take a walk and listen to the birds. And if they're been smoking pot for 20 or 25 years, I would hope that it might make them think about stopping for a week and seeing how they feel mm -hmm. uh, and weigh all the yeah. pros and cons of having, you know, I couldn't drive from Philadelphia to New York without rolling and smoking five joints on the way. Obviously, I rolled them before mm -hmm. I left, but <laughs> every, every 60 miles, I had to get high. It's not 30 wow. miles. Uh, and that's a relief yeah. not to have to do that anymore. You know, sometimes, even yeah. to this day, I'm getting ready to leave the house, and I'm thinking, what did I forget? Oh, I forgot to roll the joints. No, I didn't forget to roll the joints. I don't have to roll <laughs> joints. And trust me, if you fly a lot, it's yeah. such a relief to go through security and not worry not that they're going to pat you down and feel the little pipe in your pocket or in your crotch or something. It's, it's liberating. It's liberating. You know, you might only have a quarter ounce on you, but it feels like a, like 10 pounds. And maybe not anymore because yeah. it's legal, but it's still, I don't think it's legal to fly around with it from one city to another because you never go, know when you're going to end up in a state where they're still arresting people for it. Uh, yeah. So, I don't know what South Carolina's laws are, but hopefully they don't. How about that? We, we don't we don't do anything unless the rest of the country does. I mean, South Carolina doesn't. You know, they they go um, kicking the fighting every inch of the way when it comes to something like that. So, you know, that you know, education and, and awareness um, is real important. But anyway, Leonard, we're running out of time, so I want to thank you for your time today. I really enjoyed speaking with you. Um, Robert, a this was a, a pleasure. It's a pleasure. And, you know, I usually tell interviewers, I say, hey, look, smoking pot every day for 26 years did a little to impair my cognitive functions. So it's hard for mm -hmm. me to have a conversation that goes from A to B to C to D. So I apologize if I was all over the place, but, hey, I'm all over the place. Hey. That's it. That's okay. An alphabet of, of ideas is good. So we're, we're fine with that. It's about that long live planet Earth. Absolutely. Absolutely. Now, if, pe if people want to keep in touch with you, you're on social media? I'm, a, I'm, I'm old, so I use Facebook. And occasionally I take okay. out an ad on Facebook because I'm concerned about Mark Zuckerberg going broke. So, letter <laughs> to Facebook. Uh, friend me, curse me, buy the book. The book is fantastic. It's only, the, the download is only $4.20. Okay, the book, actual book is like 224 pages. It'll set you back $19. But I guarantee it's a page turner. That sounds exciting. Everybody is going to enjoy it and have, and, it, and it's nice that you included humor because I think you can learn so much through humor. And, um, play an instrument, you better make people laugh, otherwise, why be here? Or yeah, teach them something, you. teach them, entertain them, make them laugh, and, yes, and share absolutely. a smile, which everybody can get back their smiles now after two years. And you know, next time you go out. Make it smile a little bigger than you used to. I agree. I agree. So, again, thank you for your time today, Leonard. It's really been a pleasure. Hey, trip. Robert. A pleasure. Okay, everyone, again today, my special guest has been Leonard Lee Bouchel. We've been talking about his book, Hi, Confessions of a Cannabis Addict. 
And again, you can find out more by visiting his website, which is leonardbussell.com. And it's Leonard and then B-U-S-C-H-E-L dot com. And everyone, I want to thank you for joining us for this edition of the Bringing Inspiration to Ursa. And until we meet again, thank you for tuning in. You've been listening to the Bringing Inspiration to Earth show. Remember, our show is available as a free podcast from Spotify, iHeartRadio, TuneIn, Apple Podcasts, Blog Talk Radio, Amazon Music, and Audible. To follow our show on any of those platforms, visit ByteRadio.me and select the one you use most. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Byte Radio Me. Until we meet again, remember to be a bright light by bringing inspiration to your world and to the lives of those you touch.